Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. You know, fighting, urinating, vandalising, singing sectarian songs in the street. None of these things are acceptable and there has to be some degree of responsibility taken by the clubs here. Do you, do you think the club? Do you think the club did enough? Alison Theodore suggesting that perhaps they, they may may not. She's not certain. May not have done enough. Did, do you think Rangers Football Club did enough to get the message out? The key issue with the current examinations are that they aren't assessing actual potential pupils. What they're doing is fitting them into a pigeonhole based on how they re, how they're performing in relation to their peers. Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Very warm welcome to the latest edition of my Herald podcast. It's been quite a week at Holyrood. Um, the, the cabinet reshuffle, all sorts of changes, of course, in the aftermath of the election, but a big week at, at, at Westminster as well. An issue we'll be talking about on this programme, on this episode, is the, the, the question of international holiday travel. Prime Minister giving some responses on that. I'm delighted to be joined by Alistair Grant, uh, my colleague from the Herald, and also very delighted indeed to be joined by three senior politicians, Alison Thewlis, the SNP MP for Glasgow Central, Miles Briggs, who's a Conservative MSP and newly returned to Holyrood, and Paul Sweeney, a Labour MSP on the Glasgow list, uh, entering Holyrood, uh, I believe, for the first time. Paul, congratulations upon that after your spell as an MP. Delighted to welcome all three. Let's kick off. Alison, let's bring us up to date. We, we had a cabinet reshuffle this week, the um, various changes, you know, uh, the, the were, there were many stepping down already. Just take us, take us through that very briefly, if you would. It, it's, it's, a, it's a big new reshaping, isn't it? It is, yeah. So it's a, quite a wide-ranging reshuffle in terms of people changing roles, a lot of movement between different roles, but not many new faces, it has to be said. Um, so one of the first things, but pretty much the first thing to be announced, actually, I think, was that John Swinney would be moving out of the, the Education Secretary yeah. role and taking on this new role as kind of COVID Recovery Secretary, which uh-huh. seems like an extremely wide-ranging portfolio with his fingers and kind of many different pies. Yeah. Um, and we've got Shirley Ann Somerville coming in as the, he's, he's, as gonna, the he's gonna be either he's gonna be either in the cabinet, either the whip on that on that issue or, or, or the whipping boy, you know, and, and it's up to him, I guess, how what he makes of it. Yeah, I saw another journalist referring to him as the as the cabinet enforcer, which I think seems a, oh, a fair enough way to to describe right. him. But as I said, we've got this new education secretary, Shirley Ann Somerville. Bit of a surprise to me, it wasn't a name that was being kind of floated around uh-huh. as a as a potential education secretary. But then again, I think she was actually a further education, higher education minister yes. uh, between 2016 and 2018. So she does have a bit, yeah. of, a bit of background there. And she was previously Social Security Secretary. So she's got, I guess, that experience with a, a kind of a, a reasonably big portfolio of a lot of changes that were coming in in Social Security. Um, but it's, it would be a big job for her. And education it's, is obviously it's huge. It's a big huge. issue going let, forward. Let, let, let's, go to, let, let, let's pause there and go to the, to, to the panel. Alison... Hewless, Miles Briggs. Remember me, Miles, Miles first on, on, on this one. We have Nicholas Sturgeon describing our cabinet as a serious government for the serious times we face as a nation. So that's obviously COVID. We'll talk about that in a second. But this education remit, I mean, it, it, John Swinney is, is not the first to have faced a really challenging time uh, handling education. Can anybody sort out the school system? Does it need sorted out? Maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's OK and it's doing all right. What, what's your take on that? Um, well, I think there's huge challenges, Brian, and we've got what was the pre-pandemic world where we were falling down many uh, league tables and we weren't actually seeing 
the results after you know five years of John Swinney in this education department. And we've now got the post-pandemic education world where, you know, in terms of our education systems, our qualifications system, a huge amount of work needs to take place to get these back on track and get Scottish education back to where it should be. So um, it's a huge job. Um, I think Shirley Ann Somerville hopefully will be a fresh pair of eyes on this um, and we'll really focus on that because I think a lot of our criticism actually of John Swinney was um, when he was education and deputy first minister, he was often a jack of all trades and education wasn't necessarily his number one focus. So I hope we do see Shirley Ann Somerville really getting in this, um, in about the job and also more importantly, uh, listening to cross party concerns and, and, and ideas because we all need to make sure uh, that education recovers uh, as soon as possible. Paul, I think Labour, was it Labour that called for John Swinney to be, to be sacked? It was a bit, bit cheeky during the run-up to, to a reshuffle, wasn't it? I mean, presumably you, you're pleased you got your way in, in some senses. What, what do you make of the changes more seriously? Well, John Swinney's been a bit of a lame duck since the summer last year. I think the, it was only the weight of the threat of a, a vote of no confidence in his uh, stewardship of the SQA crisis that prompted any, any recognition that it was even a problem. Um, and of course, eventually, the young people who were affected received some degree of of reassurance about their grades and the, the, the fact that they were being penalised simply by what school they went to was totally outrageous and recognised as a result. I think he was always going to be a, a damaged um, an, uh, individual in that role. Um, it was, uh, I suppose, a, and a way of saving face that he was reshuffled in the way he was, but he was a kind of a lame duck in that role and had been for the best part of a year. Um, we'll see how he performs in this new role over seeing the COVID recovery, but it's going to be a hell of a challenge, particularly in city like Glasgow, which is seeing significant challenges with managing COVID and also rolling out the vaccinations, which is lagging significantly behind the rest of the country. So we really need some urgent attention on that. Uh, 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 also, see, yeah, go, go on, please, Paul. Yeah, go on. We're, just, we're also seeing an, a, a repeat of the same sort of issue with the examinations, well, non-examinations happening with SQA. So Shirley Ann Somerville's certainly got a work cut out in the next few weeks to try and address that because we're hearing a lot of reports from, from school teachers saying you know, these so-called assessments, they're really, really harming children. Um, there, there, there's all sorts of flaws with the system where the same examinations are happening in different days so pupils are able to share the, the, the papers ahead of time so it's creating surely not surely so, not wash your mouth out. that can't be happening well indeed you know you think we'd have seen that one coming you know so it's just another example of an incompetence we've seen throughout the last year uh, Alison pretty uh, damaging reports there from Paul and Miles I suppose it falls into the, uh, the category of they would say that wouldn't they um, but it has been an incredibly difficult year for everybody all around. And I think John Swinney, John Swinney has, has managed that as best as he possibly could in incredibly difficult circumstances. And because nobody knew exactly how the pandemic would unfold, nobody certainly expected that we would still be uh, facing the challenges that we are today um, when, this, when the first lockdowns were announced last year. So I think trying to kind of manage your way through this um, in these difficult circumstances where schools have had to close their doors and people have had to switch to online learning and do all kinds of difficult things. It's been an incredibly difficult uh, year and I've got a huge amount of respect for John Swinney for how um, he has uh, tried to manage that with the many different moving parts that the education system was does it, have. And um, I certainly wish Shirley Ann all the very best um, it, with taking on that role. Was he sacked from the education remit or promoted or staying still? How, how do you read it? I think um, with a new government coming in, it makes sense to to look at those roles and where everybody's at on that. And giving uh, a fresh pair of eyes onto it, I think, is, is perfectly reasonable in the circumstances. Well, Alistair, what, what, what about that question? What, was he was he sacked? Does he stand still? Is he promoted? Is he given a new role? What, what's what's the what's the take in the media corridor? 
Yeah, it's a bit of a strange one. I think it was interesting that it was uh, the first announcement in the cabinet reshuffle because it seemed to be, yeah, I don't know how much of a consideration this was, but it seemed to be a bit of a, a bit of an attempt to kind of preempt that media narrative yes. about John Swinney losing his job in the education portfolio and by putting it out first thing, they've kind of, you know, moved him out of that portfolio, but given right. him this new role. So I think in some senses, he, he has been moved out of that role. And I think he was becoming a controversial figure in that role. He was getting a lot of criticism from the opposition parties. I think he remains the, the only government minister that's ever faced two votes of no confidence in Holyrood, albeit one of them was, was nothing to do with education. Um, but it's no denying that his new role is, is a big role. I mean, it's, it's, I don't yeah. know if it's a promotion, but it's certainly a, it's certainly a, a large and role. He remains deputy first minister, doesn't he? You know, quite clearly remains in that, that post as well. But let's go to the panel again. Paul Sweeney, would you, this business of, of assessments, et cetera, do you think that we should, we should return to the hires at all? Or, or should, I mean, as some are suggesting, should it be constantly done by, by assessment? Or do we need some form of external validation of people's performance? The revelation for me over the last summer was actually just how structurally unequal the examination system is. I was really surprised at how you know, people were defending an algorithm rather than the actual welfare of pupils and actually their real academic potential. Um, you know, the most stark comparisons were between the private schools in Glasgow and the state schools in Glasgow and just how unfair um, the changes were being made, you know, that they were getting basically fitted into a bell curve, regardless of how they actually performed. And I, did, I don't think that's a fair system at all. I think it exposed the reality of the pretty much a Victorian system of examination that we've had for so yeah, long. Do we, do, we, do we bring yeah. back the hires when it's possible to do so or do we go over to, to continuous assessment? I would like to see a move towards continuous assessment. That's my personal view on that. Scrap, scrap uh, the hires altogether. No, no external. Well, examples. there may well be need to be external validation of some elements of assessment. Fair enough, but I think we need to seriously challenge. Well, that just makes it even more complex. You've got continuous assessment, and then you check the continuous assessment. What you well, mark the markers? There tends to be a combination in most academic institutions that happens at universities, for example. You have external assessors, you have internal assessments. You know, it's fair enough to be a degree of flexibility in it, but I think. I wouldn't think it needs to be examinations. I think it's about teacher assessment in class, how you perform okay. through the year, you know, a degree of recognising the real professional judgment of teachers, which is something that's been totally forgotten about really in the last few years. Uh, Alison, then Miles. I think it's uh, a bit bizarre of Paul to say that you, first of all, that you don't, he doesn't want assessments now. But he wants more assessments by teachers in class. He can't. He's saying he does. He does want and doesn't want exactly the same things, um, which I think is utterly bizarre. Um, but I, I will be very interested to see um, what happens when the, the OECD report comes out, what the findings yes. of that are, and then in, in the June we are expecting possibly end possibly end the June for that. Although that's in their hands rather than the hands of the government. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What what what, what do you think Scotland's education system needs? I think a, a former Secretary of State said it needed a revolution. Do you think we need um, that sort of level of change or, 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 have we, or have we changed it too much? Have we tinkered with it too much? I think there, there certainly has been many changes over the years, certainly um, in how things are, are done and um, in terms of the new qualifications that came in. And I think it is important that, that when you have somebody external like the OECD looking at that, they're looking at this, looking at comparisons on a global basis, and we can take a, really their assessment uh, and find out how that fits with Scotland and with their culture um, in schools as well. And I, as some of you may know, I've got a wee bit of uh, a conflict of interest in this, as my, my dad has uh, a role in, in education as well. Um, and I think what is important, really, is 
that you, le- you learn from the experts and you listen to those experts and then you implement um, what will work best within Scotland. But I think there's there's often far too much of, uh, of politicians like us, uh, with the respect to colleagues I'm here, saying yeah. what they think because we've all been to school and we've all sat exams at some point rather than what the evidence leads us to. And I think it is important that we look at the evidence on this rather than taking perhaps our own personal experiences of what, what exams were like back in the day um, or what perhaps our children might be doing uh, right. now, okay. but we look at that evidence and we implement it on that basis. Miles, Miles, despite that chiding upon politicians, go on, pile in. What do you What do you make? No, I actually agree with some of what uh, Alison said there because I think there is growing and widespread concern about Scottish qual- the Scottish Qualifications Authority examination assessment and awards process, which we've seen during this period. But we need to get back to teachers and parents and you know individual pupils being able to see where they're at, and I think that's why this idea of just scrapping exams we need to draw a line under and and because of the pandemic we know what's you, you, to be clear you would bring once it's possible and feasible you would bring back the hires and advanced hire and all, all that we, we have to and we have to find out where uh, pupils are at um, and where we can then you know get our education system re-established but one of the things which i think is important is also as we look towards the future um is actually the skill set scotland needs and what we need to make sure our young people are you know fulfilling their skills uh, to get into the workplace. And that's one of the things which I'm concerned about because during this pandemic, um, young people who've left school, left college or university have almost been left in limbo and will be almost until you know we get out of this pandemic uh, lockdown situation. And, and what their future looks like is something we should all be focused on and, and the skill set and the new jobs of the future, um, which will be very different, I think, post-pandemic. Let's bring it, Paul, Paul briefly on, on uh, I see you keen to get in there. Well, it's just this point about assessment. I think yeah. that the key issue with the current examinations are that they aren't assessing actual potential pupils. What they're doing is fitting them into a pigeonhole based on how, they re- how they're performing in relation to their peers. The number of A grades that you get in a given year is determined by the relative performance of everyone else. It's not how actually good you are at the subject. And that's the problem because it's all about who gets into uni and who doesn't. That's essentially what it is. There's only X number of places available. And it's basically creating a slide rule where you lot can go in, but they actually what would have passed and got an A grade one year is different to the next. Yeah, surely that's different. a way of moderating exactly that. It's a way of moderating whether the exam is easier than previous years. It's, way, it's a way of moderating whether the, 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 the marking by, by external uh, examiners has been perhaps more um, uh, easygoing than, than in past years. It's a way of trying to get some, some form of, of common thread, isn't it? That's, that's the term, some of the justifications that are made, but what we've actually seen play out with some of the egregious um, adjustments that were made last summer, when yeah. you saw private schools getting huge improvements when they appealed exams versus other schools that were state schools and lower performance, because basically you're, 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 you're imprisoned by the performance of previous cohorts in that school. So, if, you know, Springburn Academy only got uh, 20% of pupils getting an A grade the previous year, even if actually... 30% of pupils the next year perform well enough to get an A, they were still going to be marked down okay. even because the performance of the previous years. That is not a, that's not a fair system of assessment. What I meant by continuous assessment is yeah. not having formal do or die exams. What I mean is having a, a gradual process where people are able to show their true potential through the course of a year without that pure pressure of hothousing someone at the end of a year with their having to sort of do this kind of time-pressured examination. Okay, let, let, let's let's move on. We, we, we mentioned, we had mentioned there of lockdown more generally, you know, post-lockdown, we'll be able to do this, post-lockdown, we'll be able to do that. Alistair, just bring us up to speed. Where, where are we on that in, in Scotland? Where are we in UK terms about international holiday travel as well? Just briefly, if you would. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that all eyes are on the so-called Indian variant of the, of the coronavirus. I mean, last yeah. week, Glasgow and Murray stayed in level three instead of moving down to level two, like the rest of mainland Scotland. 
Murray appears to be on a downward trajectory. I think Glasgow's still high, but maybe slowing. But we're now seeing rising cases in East Renfrewshire. Right, um, yeah. With the council, I think it's the same as Glasgow, over 100 cases per 100,000 people. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think we're, we're due a decision as to whether what will happen in terms of Glasgow, Murray, East, Ren- East Renfrewshire, whether they'll stay in level three or move to level two. Uh-huh. Um, in East Renfrewshire's case, I'd obviously be moving to. Moving and, to and, and can you clarify us at all over international holiday travel? We, we had, I think, three UK government ministers saying almost three different things, but the prime minister basically saying, you know, really, you shouldn't be going to amber countries, for example. Obviously got this new traffic light system for international travel. I think uh, the transport, the UK Transport Secretary Grant Shapps was this morning saying that people should use their, use their kind of common sense when it comes to travelling abroad. So although, I think just, just really briefly, I think with the, the kind of red, red list countries, you have to go into a hotel to quarantine when you, came, when you come back. Amber list, you self-isolate at home for 10 days. In green list, you would basically just do a PCR test. You wouldn't have to self-isolate Aye. as such. Okay. Um, so although those amber countries, you know, in theory, you can travel to them and then come back and self-isolate for 10 days. The UK government is very much saying, don't go on holiday there, only go yeah. in exceptional circumstances. So I think there's a perception, I think the, the boss of EasyJet was saying this, that there's some kind of mixed signals or people yeah. are a little bit confused by what they can and can't do okay. uh, in terms of travel abroad. Uh, Alison, on, on the, the lockdown, first of all, I mean, Glasgow, obviously very, very disappointed to stay in that, in that upper area, Glasgow hoteliers, restaurants, pubs, etc. You know, you, you must be feeling it as a, as a constituency MP for that area. Yes, absolutely. And huge disappointment that that has happened. Um, and hopefully if, if people stick to the rules and they get their vaccination as there's a vaccination surge going on and, and get tested, um, then hopefully... Do you think, do you think it's that mainly? Is it, is it just failure to get vaccinations? Is it, is it, is it, what is it? What, what's causing the problem from your perspective? I mean, there's a whole number of reasons within that. I don't think there's any one cause, uh, which is, is clear. Um, there are some issues, I suppose, with, with travel that may have occurred, um, and I'm sure the public health uh, teams will be getting on, on top of that as much as they can do. Um, you know, also in the south side of Glasgow, you have uh, many sort of larger uh, multi-generational family, families yeah. in the one house, which makes things more complicated too. So you have kids who are at school, parents who are at work, grandparents living in the house as well, what, which makes it slightly accus- more complex. Forgive me, what about the accusation that Scottish ministers, you know, the notice was too short for, you know, for that differential approach? in Glasgow and we might be getting one in East End as well. I mean, the circumstances aren't ideal and I'm sure if they had more time, they would have done it. Yeah. But the, the alternative would be to leave this uh, for the outbreak to spread further uh, and for the lockdown to last longer. So I think really in the circumstances, uh, it was absolutely necessary. And I had, you know, uh, complaints as I'm sure all MPs in Glasgow and MSPs in Glasgow would have had from people who ever have been affected by that um, and their businesses and I have absolute sympathy for them. But in the circumstances, I'm afraid that's uh, absolutely necessary. And the response is, is going in in terms of, uh, speeding up the vaccination to people uh, yeah. in the area and making sure that people are tested as well. And to anybody that's listening, I would encourage people to um, to get tested and to try and do all that they can to stick to the rules and, and get us out this as quickly as we can. Yeah, do. OK. Right. Paul, Paul, what do you make of that? You're, you're a Glasgow politician as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's alarming and it's been quite concerning to see that as of the weekend there, that the average in Scotland was 70% vaccination rate, but we're dropping, uh, dropping down in the cities to 56% in Glasgow and 54% in Edinburgh. I think that's a reflection of the demographics. Obviously, Glasgow's are young, Glasgow and Edinburgh cities that are fairly younger relative to the rest of the country, they're going to have a more fluid population. One of the concerns that I've had is that the, um, re- the determination of who's getting a vaccine is determined by where you're registered for GP surgery. And we've seen a lot of young people, for example, won't register with a GP necessarily, or they may be registered at home somewhere else. Um, for example, when I was actually out in the election campaign, I was leafleting student halls, and there was blue envelopes scattered around the landings and stuff like that, where, where oh. people had been disappeared, you know, um, hadn't been there. 
So there's a, I think there's a real flaw as we're getting further down the age range right. where this, this snail mail system isn't necessarily going to be as effective. So I think we need to seriously open that up to having online booking systems, having more access. I mean, this is the thing I've discovered that the 0800-030-8013 helpline, the free helpline, you can phone up and actually they'll tell you when you're due to get a vaccine if you're on the system. Yeah. Um, and that's now open to everyone in, uh, everyone in Glasgow from 30 over and in the designated postcodes uh, on the south side. Do, do, uh, do you think the Glasgow decision was, with the Glasgow decision, the money decision, you know, what may happen elsewhere, was it inevitable? Was it driven, as Alison is saying, by uh, you know unfortunate circumstances, or was it was it too late? Was it delayed too much? I think it's just a virtue of the fact that these areas, well, certainly in Glasgow's case, there's a greater population density. There are certain multi you know age households, but also there is just the fact that you know testing, for example, has been more more difficult to achieve in Glasgow relative to other parts of the country. Uh-huh. I think there's been an element where the Scotland actually has been rather behind the curve with the rate of testing that we've done. I think, like for example, the posting out of uh, lateral flow testing to households in Glasgow is fantastic. I wish that had been happening throughout the last year, to be honest with you, as soon as we had that capability. It feels like it's been very much the onus is on the individual to take the initiative. And I feel right. there should be better effort at actually getting people managed through that system. So, Miles Briggs, what do you make of that? How did the Scottish government, how has the Scottish government handled this, this issue of opening up after lockdown, in your opinion? Well, I think, you know, we've seen the vaccine rollout at the beginning be an incredible success story. And we should, you know, as a country, UK, be celebrating that. But we're really into now the most difficult part of this whole exercise. And and Paul was right. I think some of the concerns I had raised with Gene Freeman was this idea that actually based on your GP registration would be where you'd be in the pecking order. And I think uh-huh. we need to see a bit of a shift. And I hope uh, the new health secretary, Hamza Youssef, really considers this quite early because, if we are going to make sure the whole population is vaccinated by the end of July, then younger people, uh, people from deprived communities, and obviously people with maybe language difficulties need to have more of a focus um, uh-huh. to make sure that they can as easily and as flexibly, you know, a lot of the younger working populations, and Paul was right in terms of Edinburgh um, and Glasgow having a, a younger population base, and therefore we will see a steeper increase in uh, vaccine availability yeah. towards the end of uh, the vaccine programme. Uh, but whether or not people get time off work to go and drop everything to go and get their vaccine is something which has been raised with me constantly. And the non-attendance levels we're seeing is deeply concerning. So it's a big issue and we need to make sure as we finally, hopefully, get to the end of this vaccine programme um, by the end of July that everyone is as easily able to access it. How, how, how about pending that? You know, hear your thoughts on vaccine. This business of international travel, should we I mean, really, really, should we really be in, uh, allowing or permitting, uh, you know, people to, to go abroad on, on, on holiday? I know folk are desperate to go on holiday. I, I, I get it. I get the concept. I understand it. But really going to countries where, and, and they might be, you know, gathering with people in, in close, close uh, conjunction in airports, etc. Is that really sensible? Wasn't there some confusion on the part of the UK government? Yeah, and I think that's where the Prime Minister is absolutely right to provide that clarity. People shouldn't be going on holiday to these countries. Uh, but actually, for families who are having to travel to save loved ones, for example, who are maybe end-of-life care, for example, that needs to yeah. be available, and that's really important. But there is that wider issue of the rest of the world will start to now look towards countries, especially over the summer. And you know, Most people are looking at flights from Spain and Portugal thinking, oh, can I get away in August? And I think one of the key things we need to make sure is, as these countries will be expecting uh, us to have this passporting system, that the governments across the UK are absolutely right to make sure that we, we have this. 
And, and people can do it as flexibly as possible so that as soon as they've got their vaccines, they can register and we can make sure, um, given that the vaccine is actually currently uh, standing up against all these variants, that there is that yes. opportunity for people to have that break. Because we can't stay in lockdown forever. And it's not just our economy uh, which has suffered. A lot of the European economies, which are basically tourist-based economies, when you look at Spain, um, yes. you know, they want to get into recovery. And if we can do that safely, I think it's sensibly... What possible benefit does it do to Scotland? to have people travelling with, with global airlines to, to destinations in Spain, where actually the benefit, and, and, and there is a possible cost in terms of health risks, the benefit would actually be if they stayed at home and spent money here, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And I'd encourage that, obviously. But for, you know, we people want to have that flexibility to go abroad to get some sunshine. And, you know, one of the key things, I think, is we live in that global society. I know a lot of medics who fly into Scotland to work in our NHS. Um, and so increasingly, you can't just... Draw, pull up the drawbridge and hope that this will never just, go away. Know, We've got, got them out. Alison, Alison are you, are you, uh, is your party in favour of pulling up the drawbridge, as, as the, the phrase was used there? I think we have to be really cautious about overseas travel. And I noted that the um, Department for Transport put out a tweet about amber list and red list and green list countries, uh, and the UK is amber. So we would really be encouraged to travel to ourselves, given, uh, <laughs> given the situation that we have at the moment. Um, and certainly I'll be, I'll be staying at home, um, hopefully holidaying, day tripping at some place. But um, if we ever get out of I, Glasgow. I love, I love the one saying you can travel to Australia, but by the way, when you get there, they won't let you in. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think there's advice really. Um, while I appreciate, again, the concerns for, uh, for businesses in the travel sector is to stay at home um, and to holiday here if we can, because... Uh, the risks are really too great. We, we nearly got this licked in Scotland last summer uh, and it was people going abroad and coming back with the virus last summer that increased the spread and brought us back into um, into the COVID lockdown. And, and yet you could say the Scottish government's contributing to it to some way, to some extent by uh, this this idea of a vaccination certificate you can obtain yourself rather than going through the GP. Isn't that just making it easier for, for, for global tra- international travel? I think there's a sort of ongoing debates around this um, and it, it does seem that other countries are now requiring something so it becomes out with our control actually um, oh, I see I see okay so yeah, if, okay. if you're being required to have a, a certificate of some kind before you can leave the country I think you know it then isn't entirely in our own hands on that so I think that the discussion has moved on a wee bit I think perhaps but Paul I mean I, Paul a very interesting point that Miles Miles was making there you know we cannot stay in lockdown forever that's true isn't it we cannot stay in lockdown Forever, what, what, at what point do you think the balance is in favour of, look, we've had enough of this, we, we, we need to try and get our economy and our society back to normal? Well, I think we saw the disastrous effects of that impulse earlier last year when we had the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which is now commonly accepted to have seeded a second wave of the virus, which has caused tens of thousands of deaths. It was a disastrous public policy decision. But one of the more alarming aspects of the last year was the seeming eagerness of the government to maintain open air routes even though we knew how disastrous that was having an effect. And, I mean, the UK example, government, but, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, like I remember watching in horror last March as flights were flying in from, you know, from Northern Italy into Edinburgh Airport, thinking they're just carrying this virus into the UK and yeah. into, into Edinburgh. And we saw that pattern play out. We've seen, obviously, the seeding of the Indian uh, variant of the virus in recent months. And that was this, you know, the, the government were way behind the curve in terms of putting restrictions on inward uh, air travel. Um, to the UK. There was no protocols for testing people coming off aircraft um, from these destinations. We seriously need to rig- improve the rigour of that. Um, maybe it's a case of you know, bolting the, the stable door after the horse is bolted to some extent. But um, I would point out, though, that Scottish ministers do have significant um, scope um, to introduce these measures in Scotland through the Public uh-huh. Scotland Act 2008, which can introduce quarantines and restrictions um, on uh, inbound aircraft, and they can have testing protocols at airports. I think we haven't done enough to explore the opportunity of that. 
I do recognise the point about, you know, we need to eventually uh, move on. I'm, I'm firmly in the view of having a zero COVID approach um, in terms of policy, but I recognise that there's going to be a point where we do have to, you know, strike a balance. Um, but we're way too premature at this stage. The vaccine programme, let's let it complete its work um, before we, we relinquish um, and open the doors, you know. And I think well, there's been a real confusion over the red and green system as well. We've seen how chaotic it was at PMQs the other day. Let's bring in Miles. Miles Briggs, some members of your party have faced accusations that you, you, you're just too much in hock to, you know, the, the, the big travel industry, that you're too eager to, to get travel going again as a consequence. No, I, I don't agree with that. You know, I, I in the last parliament, um, you know, shadowed Jean Freeman as shadow health secretary. And, yeah. you know, we supported the government in taking forward all these um, these uh, restrictions on our lives to uh, with a public health focus. Um, but we, I think, have also now got to a point where we're all terrified of the word variant. Um, we will see these variants. The COVID vaccine is effective for them all currently. And just like flu, as it mutates, you know, the booster we will hopefully see yes. in the winter flu period is really important uh, to meet wow. any of these. But the fact that it is mutated, you know, mutation as a word freaks the public out. But the fact we've seen it mutate 7,000 times yeah. um, is what the experts are saying is, I, I, you know, we can't be cavalier with this, but we have to try to get as slowly back to normal as possible because the economic impact, impact on young people, as we've discussed, is huge. And just to stay in a permanent lockdown um, and, and where mutations are, you know, reported as they have been around the Indian uh-huh. one... Um, isn't building public confidence. And I think we all need to try to do something about that because, um, you know, the impact on our whole society, our economy, on, our, on the actual mental health of people, which is critically yeah. important, um, needs talk, to be addressed. Talking about health, I mean, one, one th- Scottish deaths have around about 10,000 from this hideous plague, one third of them in care homes. Alastair, a, 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 a new story uh, from the, a new um, report, rather, from the Mental Welfare Commission on the, the transfer of patients from hospital to care homes. Just Bring us up to speed briefly on that, if you would. Yeah, so I mean, care homes in general have been a big issue throughout the pandemic, particularly in those first few months of hospitals uh, trying to kind of free up beds when they expected a a big influx of people with coronavirus. Uh, So this new report by the Mental Welfare Commission has found that hundreds of vulnerable people, uh, some with conditions such as severe dementia, uh, were moved from hospitals to care homes without due consent. Uh, At the start of the pandemic, it highlighted endemic poor practice and at least 20 transfers were unlawful, but many more were carried out without a proper authority or potentially in breach of human rights. Uh, so it's obviously an extremely serious issue. Yeah. Paul, Paul Sweeney, um, very serious issue. It could, could scarcely be more emotive, the, the, this question. One, one has seen the emotive nature on, on the face previously of Gene Freeman and certainly still on the, the face of the, of the First Minister, but the transfer was done at the time for very, very, very good reasons, which was that the fear that hospitals were going to be entirely and completely swamped by, by COVID patients. Wasn't that the case? Yes, um, the rationale at the time was, was um, reasonable, um, but I think we've learned that this continued to happen, even though the realisation was that this was having a severe effect on care homes. Um, so again, a failure in decision-making, a failure in leadership there, in my view. Um, when that information became more apparent, there should have been rapid correction, and that didn't happen. Of course, we're going to have a public inquiry, um, and I believe all that will be fully investigated. But I think I've got severe concerns because I know that people were making these points when they should have been acted on, and they weren't listened to. That's the fundamental point. It wasn't that this is like, well, we couldn't have possibly envisaged this. Of course, maybe the initial impulse was, yes, clear the hospitals, ensure maximum capacity, 
for clinical um, urgent clinical issues like um, co- treating COVID. Um, but the the secondary effects of discharging elderly people who were a particularly vulnerable population cohort into concentration with areas of concentration where they're all together in a in a residential setting cause an absolute disaster. Miles um, Briggs, you, you you pursued this repeatedly in the, in the previous parliament, and one one report found that a far bigger factor was that the size of the, of the care home rather than necessarily the nature of the. The transfer. What, what do you make of that, Miles Briggs? Then Alison Thewlis. Miles first. You know, I'm not interested in a sort of witch hunt against the individual ministers because across the world, every minister was taking the same decisions. Um, yeah. But some of my greatest concerns, and I have cases I'm going to pursue for families, is that human rights based approach not being put in place. And actually, more importantly, for example, around the do not resuscitate applications and things like that, there's a huge scandal here which eventually has to be shone a light upon. And I think for a lot of families I'm working with, um, you know, they actively said they didn't want their relatives to be moved and they were. And like you say, you know, larger care homes um, were where we saw often individuals spreading like wildfire. Now, these were vulnerable individuals in these care homes. And, you know, that is where, um, you know, you would expect, sadly, this uh, virus to spread and, and be easily caught. But part of what we need to do is actually restore that confidence um, then actually a pair of attorney where you actually are given the decision making over a vulnerable individual, for example, people with um, Alzheimer's, dementia, that that isn't overruled. And, you know, I know families who particularly feel that their wishes were not uh, taken into account of. And that's wrong. And we need to get to the bottom of. Thanks, Miles. Alison Thewis. I agree with what everybody has said here. Decisions were being made. Um at, you know, for the best of reasons at, the, at that time, um, which has been clear, you know, from all that has unfolded since, that perhaps, you know, very clearly things should have been done differently um, and different decisions could have been made. But um, a lot of this uh, is is with hindsight. I think it is really important that we do get to that kind of public inquiry, that we do get to, to look at all of the things that happened, what we should have done differently, what, what we would change um, you, should something you, like this happen again. Could you clarify, Alice, is it a UK public inquiry with a Scottish dimension or will there be a distinctive... Scottish inquiry. I'm just not entirely clear on that. I'm not 100% clear on where that stands at the moment, Brian, no. either. Um, but I think it would be, you know, Nicola Sturgeon has been clear that there should be a public inquiry in Scotland. And if it yes. folds into the UK one neatly enough, then then that is fine. If there are other aspects that we want to pick up and should be pursued, um, I think that would also um, be useful as well. We shouldn't you, miss anything out from the inquiries. Do you think if it's clear we, that one of the other is, then, then we should pursue that? Forgive me, Alison. We're, we're saying that these decisions were taken and they were taken for, for, for at the time. Powerful motivations, which was to clear the, the hospital beds and to clear space. But do you think with, and I, I concede it as a huge advantage, with the advantage of hindsight, was that decision, were these decisions wrong? Were, were, were mistakes made at, at the time, as as indeed Gene Freeman conceded? Yeah, I mean, Gene Freeman and Nicholas Sturgeon have conceded that mistakes yeah. were, were made. Um, but, you know, in the heat of that moment and in the, in the notion that the hospitals were going to be overwhelmed, and um, those decisions were taken, um, you know, as you started with your question, you know, for the best of reasons at that time. Um, and I think, but it's, but it's uh, as, as Miles said as well, you know, these kind of decisions happened around the world as well. We're not unique in the decisions that were taken here. But, 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 as Miles, um, but we do need to understand why they were made what, what, and what we can do better. Sorry, what, what about Miles Briggs' point that some of this was done against, apparently against the, 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 the expressed wishes of, of family members? Yeah, and I would agree uh, that that is deeply concerning. Um, and families should have um, been consulted on those things and been listened to on those issues. But again, you know, these decisions were being made uh, very quickly in a situation that was developing really rapidly in a very, and in a very scary way at the time as well, if you remember. Yes. Okay. Um, and I think 
just to add, I suppose, to things that we might want to look at as well, practices within care homes. You mentioned the size of care homes, but also care homes moving staff around. Uh, which cause spread uh, as in Sky um, well, and other places. And that, that, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, it's something that also needs to be looked at here as well because Thank practices you. could have been better to prevent uh, harm to uh, and perhaps those weren't taken on as, as they should have been. Thanks for that. I think we'll return to this on this podcast and elsewhere. But now, now finally, um, sport, or rather quite definitely not sport, um, consequences from, from a, a, a sporting event uh, sh- showing... Uh, events in in a march through Glasgow, uh, uh, incidents in George Square. Al- Alistair, bring us up to speed on on that. The the, the Rangers uh, quote celebration. So we obviously had fifteen thousand fans uh, kind of gathering in central Glasgow over last weekend, um, which is a huge number. I mean, that's not even far off the total number of officers in police Scotland. Uh-huh. Uh, Twenty eight people arrested so far. I think last time I looked. Uh, with the police saying that more will be arrested. And there's been a question in, questions in Parliament this week, haven't there? There was a, a, a question taken as well, yeah? Yeah, so there's an urgent question on it. And I thought it was interesting how the conversation moved on to possible repercussions. So you had Hamza Yusuf, who was obviously then Justice Secretary, saying that fans who are, who are found to have been involved in disorder and vandalism should face lifetime bans from Rangers. Uh-huh. Uh, and also raising the prospect of strict liability clubs kind of being held accountable for the behaviour of their fans, which is something not, that's come they, they up. Would, they're not going to like that. And, and that would be hard to, to impose. And there could be difficulties if, you know, I don't know, one fan is impersonating behaviour from another or something like that. It could be really quite difficult challenge. They're not going to like it. It's controversial. It's obviously it's also something that has been, you know, quote unquote, on the table for years. And uh, yes. nothing has really happened as a result of it. Uh, so it'll be interesting yeah. to see what happens next and what action Rangers takes against its own fans as well. I mean, Rangers, Rangers did, they, 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 they encouraged the fans to stay away. They, I mean, they, they put out repeated statements saying, don't do this. And they, what, they said what the behaviour, was it besmirched the club? It was something like that, wasn't it, the, the, that phrase? It was, yeah. So they released a statement saying that, you know, behaviour of some fans had besmirched the club. Yeah, uh, so it was pretty strong. It was strong. We also at the same time have a, a police investigation into uh, a video, which I think was... Rangers are saying it's it's not genuine. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, let we'll, we leave that one for, for now. Let, 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 because it, it's it's not clear whether it's 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 authentic or, or not. Let, let's leave that for now. Let, let's stick to this. You know the 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 the, the events in in the march and and George Square. Um, Paul Sweeney, f- first of all, what, what do you what do you make? I mean, you're all going to say all three. You're going to say you're, you're again this. I get. I guess. I I I think we take it. You're again it. What can we do? You know, you're getting some ideas floated there by by Alistair that were floated floated in Scottish Parliament this week. Paul, what can, what can be done about this? What is, is it, are we simply helpless in the face of that, or can we do anything to to restore order in future? Well, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea of having more stringent consequences for these sorts of actions because I think this current situation is that you know you can almost turn a blind eye to it and let it carry on. Stringent consequences upon whom? For the football clubs concerned, the club. um, yeah, clubs, yeah. Uh, I think that needs to be uh, there needs to be discipline associated with this. I think, um, yeah, I mean, it was it wasn't entirely unanticipated. I think it's fair to say um, we already saw those sorts of celebrations play out a few weeks before when they when the the, 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 the arithmetic of the league was such that Rangers were going to win, um, and we saw celebrations spill out onto the streets of Glasgow. But, but yeah, Rangers, Rangers, Rangers Football Club would say that they appealed again and again and again to their fans not to repeat that, not to gather in, in the streets, not to gather outside Ibrox, not to gather in, mm-hmm. in Glasgow. They would say well, they, 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 they appealed for that again and again. Without any realistic sanction, um, that becomes a bit of a hollow request. You know? So I think if there were, for example, if there's anyone who's convicted or reported by the police, then they will be automatically banned for life from you know, the stadium. That would be a pretty, that would be a pretty good deterrent, I think. Um, but I think there's also an element of how was that managed. Um, I guess 
Um, there could have been potential flexibilities over creating safe and controlled spaces in the city. There wasn't any consideration of potentially planning to anticipate and control it to a greater extent. Uh, perhaps there could have been greater thinking about that, maybe creating spaces in outdoor areas like Billhouston Park, potentially also considering, um, I think there was a proposal to allow 10,000 fans into the stadium. Uh, we know that took place in Wembley, for example. So there could have been potentially greater flexibility around allowing suitably spaced entry into the stadium for, for fans. And I think I would have been actually... Interested would they, would they stay suitably spaced or would they all just cluster together and, and shout and cheer when, when a goal goes in? Well, I think there'd be realistic ways of doing that because you could create suitable you know, barriers and spacings uh, to control it. I think there's realistic ways of planning that. Um, so I would have been interested to explore that. But you're looking primarily for, for, for further sanctions against football uh, rather than, than against the fans specifically. Well, against the fans. Well, well. I, think, I, think, I think there needs to be an element of both. You know, the, the, the thing, I think we're obviously going to see police Scotland picking up yeah. people. I think the, the practice tends to be, as far as I can tell, that there's surveillance carried out at the event because arrest, making arrests at that point risks escalating the situation. Is, 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 um, is, so, yeah. so people will be picked up and, and charged in due course, yeah. um, and that will probably filter through. Um, but I think not only should there be that personal liability, but also there should be a degree of corporate responsibility on the, the club. Um, uh, and, and, and that would filter through, because I suppose fans have a degree of collective interest then yeah. in making sure their club isn't financially detrimented. And that could potentially also okay. be the risk of forfeiting these titles and forfeiting points. Well, you, know, you, so you, you would have, you'd have, you'd have Rangers stripped of the league? Well, I mean, there could be potential, there could be potential um, sanctions of that nature. You know, and that would be a fairly robust deterrent, I think. Should that be done this season? Should the, should the league? I, don't think it's, I think it's fair to do it retrospectively, given we were where we are. But I think certainly going forward, it's something we should consider. Okay, Alison Thewlis and then Miles Briggs. Alison, Alison first. Um, I mean, first of all, I was absolutely shocked and appalled to see this, the scenes in my constituency and yeah. uh, around the city at the weekend, um, and not for the first time because this happened obviously earlier on in the year too, and I certainly think that the club could have been a lot more. Um, a lot more strong in, in what they'd said to their supporters. So people, there's some evidence that people got planes from Belfast, for example, to Glasgow. You know, Rangers have a huge database of fans. Did they send anything to their fans say, do not travel to Ibrox, there'll be nothing to see there? I don't know if they did or not. Um, there's I think they would well say people, they put out messages um, through all, all means possible to, 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 to convey to fans that they, that they should stay away. Yeah, and people ignore that, and it's clear that... Um, what can the club do if, if people ignore it? Why, why blame the club if people ignore it completely? Well, some of this seems to have been organised by uh, by fans groups as well, um, right. and perhaps there's more that the club can do um, in terms of uh, dealing with those fans groups who clearly coordinated and orchestrated um, both the gatherings outside Ibrox, the marches through the city, uh, the gathering in George Square. What, what about um, sanctions on, on the clubs themselves? If, if their supporters, you know, it could be any club, if their supporters misbehave, should there be a financial sanction or a penalty in terms of league points or, or you know, losing trophies? Yeah, and I think we should, you know, I think it's worthwhile looking at that because this is persistent behaviour. You know, this isn't just a one-off. This has happened now numerous times. Um, and I think it's it's unfair to um, to tar all fans with the same brush, obviously. I mean, if, if a Dundee United supporter, for example, would misbehaved and the whole club got, got tarred with it, that wouldn't be... I can't imagine fair. why I'm you sh- mentioned Dundee United. I can't, I can't, I can't. <laughs> I'm sure you would agree, or a Motherwell fan or, or anybody else. But I think there has to be some kind of consequence here. Um, yeah. You know, my constituents who live in the city centre, who live around the town, are fed up with having um, these kind of things happen. They're fed up with not being able to go out of their home for hours on end because there are people outside, you know, fighting, urinating, vandalising, okay. uh, singing sectarian songs in the street. None of these things are acceptable, and there has to be some degree of responsibility uh, taken by the clubs here. Miles Briggs. 
Well, you know, these were disgraceful scenes we saw in George Square again. And, you know, I actually think we should praise the police for the work they did in an incredibly difficult situation. And they shouldn't have been put into that position in the first place. But one one of the key things is, you know, I've been speaking to some of my friends who are Rangers fans who stayed at home, celebrated at home or in their gardens, and they're disappointed. No one wants to see what this does to their football club's reputation. And I think that's where we need to make sure that those fans who decided to, to go and to go against the rules, to go against the messages which were being put by the club, by government, etc. Really, do, do you think the club? Do you think the club did enough? Alison Thiele is suggesting that perhaps they, they may may not. She's not certain. May not have done enough. Did, do you think Rangers Football Club did enough to get the message out? The communications I had seen, they were putting out, and at the end of the day, they can't control every single person who supports them. You know, it's about individual responsibility. Quite rightly, I think they're looking at footage and life bans for these individuals. Are correct? You know, if you're going to. But Sanctions on the club, financial penalties on the club, league points withdrawn, trophies withdrawn. What about that? I, I think no. we go down a very difficult road there where individuals, and we've seen this in other football clubs you know, across Europe as well, that individuals' actions then impacts on the club and, and greater fan base. And I'm not sure strict liability is something we should go down the road of. I think those individuals who have behaved in this way they individually should face these consequences and and both the club and the police should should enforce that brief final word paul and then alison uh, on on this paul and then alison well i, I agree that, you know the police behaved uh, managed the situation as best they could and that, you know some of the the, the abuse they were you know, witnessed some of the video footage it was disgraceful what was going on and, and particularly in george Square and St. vincent street um, some of the video footage was terrible um, so all credit to their efforts um and you know public servants putting themselves in the line of duty and facing pretty horrendous situations, um, they're often overlooked. And I think I'm still sympathetic to this idea that we need to create a more robust deterrent. The scale, it's the scale and repetitiveness of the of the, the disorder that's the issue. I wouldn't necessarily dock points for someone urinating in the street. You know, we're talking about riotous behaviour. You know, um, it's not normal uh, and we, we should stop, we should stop um, tolerating it. Final word, Alison. Um, just, I'm just pleased to see that the police are doing a bit of an inquiry into this um, afterwards as well. And I would encourage people who have evidence of, of antisocial behaviour uh, to submit that into this inquiry as well. Because, you know, while you know, the arrests have been made, I think there's clearly uh, much more widespread antisocial behaviour and people should be held accountable for their actions. But you think there needs to be, your constituents are just, just had enough of it. You, 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 you're saying there needs to be something more than just, you know, individual fans, you know, banned from individual grounds. Yeah, no, I think we need to look more widely at this because, as I say, it's something that's happened now on multiple occasions um, and there needs to be responsibility taken at all levels for it. Thanks to all of my panel. Thanks to Alistair Grant. Many, many thanks to all of you who tuned in to listen to this podcast. From me, Brian Taylor, toodaloo the new. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. We're giving you the chance to get exclusive access to even more insight, analysis and opinion with a Herald subscription. Take 20% off an annual rate with the code HERALDNEW2021. This offer is for new subscribers only and is only available with the promotional code. Subscriptions will renew at the standard rate unless cancelled. And sign up to our free evening politics newsletter, Unspun, to get snap analysis from some of our top contributors every day. Head to heraldscotland.com for the details. Thank you.